Tonight, would the classic fable, The Emperor's New Clothes, be considered hate speech if it were written today? It's Monday, April 18th, 2022. I'm David Menzies, and this is The Ezra Levent Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say is government but why publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. Folks, the other day I was thinking about the Hans Christian Andersen fable, The Emperor's New Clothes, and it made me ponder how much the world has changed since that fable was penned back in 1837. In fact, it also made me ponder if this fable could even be published today, and if it was published, would it be condemned as hate speech by the usual suspects? Now, if you've forgotten this tale, it goes like this. A couple of con men arrive at a capital city lorded over by a vain emperor who is known to spend lavishly on his clothing. The swindlers, posing as weavers, offer to supply the emperor with stupendous clothes. In fact, there's a magical element to these clothes in that the garments appear invisible to those persons who are either stupid or incompetent. The emperor must have these incredible clothes, of course, so he hires the flim-flam men who immediately set up looms. And as the so-called work progresses, various officials and the emperor himself visit the workshop to check out their progress. Naturally, they see that the looms are empty, but everyone pretends there is clothing upon those looms as they don't want to be labeled as fools. And when the non-existent haberdashery is completed, the swindlers pretend to dress the emperor so that he can march in a procession through town to show off his new togs. Of course, the emperor isn't wearing anything except his birthday suit, and that makes for a cringeworthy sight to be sure. And while his beleaguered subjects are completely uncomfortable looking at the emperor marching buck naked, they remain silent as nobody wants to come across as being, you know, stupid or incompetent. However, a little boy finally blurts out that the emperor isn't wearing any clothes. The people then realize that everyone, the emperor included, have been hoodwinked, even though the emperor keeps marching along, presumably to save face. Now, over the years, scholars have noted that the phrase emperor's new clothes has become a standard metaphor for anything that smacks of everything ranging from pomposity and hypocrisy to collective de denial and hollow ostentatiousness. Of course, the whistleblower boy, being a child, he has yet to be corrupted and is therefore the only straight shooter in the crowd. As such, the boy is a paragon of truth and virtue. He's a hero, actually, because he does not succumb to the vortex of bullshit perpetrated by the fraudsters. Like the umpire behind home plate, he calls them as he sees them, and he should be celebrated. But in our woke, politically correct climate of today, such a story would be unpublishable, I think. Alas, when it comes to so many issues, telling the truth is now often deemed as offensive or insensitive, and in some cases, speech that is actually 
punishable. Exhibit A, the radical transgender community and their useful idiots always on the warpath these days. You know, the crackpots that would have us believe that biological men can be women just because they believe this rubbish, or at least they pretend to believe this rubbish. Once upon a time, such people were put in an asylum. Now they are hailed as trailblazing social justice warriors. So it is that NCAA swimmer Leah Thomas is not condemned as a grifter by the progressives. Rather, Thomas is a modern-day Jackie Robinson, the first black athlete to break the color barrier in Major League Baseball. That comparison, of course, is vomit-inducing in terms of offensiveness. Thomas is clearly a man slaughtering women in the pool. But if you embrace the mantra of the little boy from the emperor's new clothes and essentially say as much, you know, that the really big girl in the pool, well, she has no breasts but does have testicles, well, you will be lambasted by the left. You will be suspended or even delisted by the censorious thugs running social media. You might even be up in front of a human rights tribunal even though such a statement is true and can be proven true. Now, the NCAA allowing this to happen in the first place is a disgrace. They are too terrified to be labeled transphobic, even though allowing this freak show to occur is misogynistic. As for the media, well, look at how NBC News digitally photoshopped Leah Thomas to make her look, you know, more feminine, NBC, a.k.a. nothing but crap, is not exposing the transgender con job. Rather, it is aiding and abetting it. Now, while Leah Thomas is the most recent trans cheat, he's certainly not the first. Indeed, consider the curious case of Michelle Dumaresque. Talk about a trailblazer. Back in 2001, Dumaresque began competing in competitive female bike races in British Columbia. She won races galore and even set speed records. Um, little wonder, folks, given that she is actually a he. Yeah, you guessed it. But get this, par for the course, Michelle won the 2006 Canadian Nationals, and that prompted the boyfriend of second-place finisher Danica Schroeder to jump up onto the podium and help Danica put on a T-shirt reading, quote, 100% pure woman champ, end quote. Well, finally, we had an emperor has no clothes moment in that a fraudster was called out publicly. And what happened? Well, the 100% pure woman Danica was suspended by the gutless weasels running the Canadian Cycling Association for her temerity to wear a shirt bearing a 100% truthful statement. Indeed, if the Canadian Cycling Association head honchos had written the emperor's new clothes, methinks the fable would have ended with the little boy receiving a severe beating. When will this madness end? Who will call out the madness? Why are so many afraid of the 0.0000001% fringe? By the way, last time I checked, folks, New York City officially recognizes 31 genders. 
Another source says the real number should be 58 genders, yet another source claims the correct number is 63. Do I hear a nice round 100? You know, maybe I'm just an old-fashioned square because I thought there were only two genders. I thought if you had a penis, you're a man, and if you have a vagina, you're a woman. Now we have guys sporting a mangina and gals packing a Venus, and no one dares say anything lest we hurt someone's precious feelings. Forgive my outdated thought process, for I was basing my reasoning on that silly little thing called, oh, you know, science, biology specifically. But these days you come across a six foot three, 275 pound dude wearing a violet bustier and a pink miniskirt and white go-go boots and hey, <laughs> it's not Halloween, rather it's a man, man, with all the bits and pieces that biologically makes him a man, yet he's self-identifying as a gender-fluid, non-binary, transsexual, gender-blender, spirit unicorn. Well, of course he is. Or then again, maybe, just maybe, that ex-linebacker decked out in a Sailor Moon costume is um, mentally ill, you think? Writing in Crisis Magazine back in 2016, when the world was far less woke and far more sane, Elise Earnhardt, makes a connection between transgenderism and autism. Now, Earnhardt is not transgender, rather she has Asperger's syndrome, and typical among Asperger's girls in their adolescence, Earnhardt preferred the company of boys due to the bullying she experienced from other girls. Citing a social media campaign featuring the hashtag AutisticTransPride, she understands why autistic adolescents believe they're transgender when, in fact, they're not. These adolescents are told they are a girl trapped in a boy's body or a boy trapped in a girl's body. And many parents buy into this completely unscientific hypothesis. Indeed, in a 2017 National Post column entitled How Trans Activists Are Unethically Influencing Autistic Children to Change Genders, Author Susan Bradley notes the following, quote, As a child psychiatrist with experience in both ASD and gender discomfort, I share Earnhardt's concern and can substantiate her claim. In her account, I see a family story of a youth with ASD who feels socially isolated and confused about sexual feelings as she moves into adolescence, end quote. Bradley believes irreversible medical interventions such as hormones and surgery should be postponed until there's certainty that the individuals are fully able to understand that there's no going back. After all, with the passage of time, such individuals might change their minds. But Bradley notes trans activists would have the public believe anyone who expresses a wish to be the other gender, should be allowed and even encouraged to do so. Politicians have actually translated such demands into law. Yet she stresses that there's no evidence that there's such a thing as a true trans, just as there's no marker that would identify a false trans. And to accept the wishes of those with autism at face value 
really isn't an act of kindness. Of course, the likes of Earnhardt and Bradley are being condemned as transphobic by the trans community and their allies due to their politically incorrect, albeit scientifically correct, observations. But then again, Earnhardt and Bradley are basing their comments on proven proofs as opposed to feelings. Bottom line, we need more people to stand up to the trans mob, people who will speak the truth rather than stay silent. And they need to be applauded, not condemned, for simply making the point that we now live in a world wherein the inmates are truly running the asylum. The brutal conflict in Ukraine continues to receive the lion's share of international news coverage these days, and rightfully so. But there is another very important international story unfolding these days, and it might just be the most overlooked and underreported story of the year thus far. Namely, there are negotiations underway that are paving the way for Iran to get nuclear weapons. That's right, the biggest state sponsor of terrorism in the world might have an arsenal of nukes in the near future. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? And joining me now for more on this disturbing story is Brian Leib, the executive director of Iranian Americans for Liberty. Thank you so much for joining me today, Brian. Oh, it's an honor. It's great to be with you. And let me just say very quickly, when you said what could go wrong, everything could go wrong. Well, you know, um, I was saying it facetiously, of course, and we will take a deep dive into uh, what could go wrong. But first off the bat, uh, Brian, what exactly is Iranian Americans for Liberty? So the Iranian Americans for Liberty, uh, or as we're also known as, is IAL. Uh, is a bipartisan group of Iranian Americans that are working together here in the United States of America uh, to uh, support uh, and strengthen U.S. foreign policy as it relates to the Islamic Republic of Iran. Uh, last year in 2021, we had the, the great fortune and, and pleasure uh, to host 16 members of Congress for virtual congressional meeting greets. Uh, we were involved behind the scenes with seven congressional oversight letters and also a very large House resolution that hit the floor in November of last year. Uh, so our main focus is making sure that we do everything that we can to uh, engage uh, and advocate with not just members of Congress, but with the American people as a whole. And we do that through the media um, and, and, and through a lot of other ways as well. Um, but, you know, we take a very strong stance against the Islamic Republic of Iran and a very strong stance in support of the freedom and liberty-seeking Iranian people. Gotcha. And of course, it goes without saying there is a profound difference between the Iranian regime and the people of Iran who are probably the biggest victims of that regime, especially when it comes to their rights and liberties. But Brian, tell me, have I got this right? It seems to me that if we just go back in time a year and a half to when the Trump administration was still in power, um, Iran seemed to be on its knees. Uh, the previous Obama-Iranian nuclear uh, agreement, that was torn up. There were all kinds of sanctions. Uh, Soleimani was uh, executed. Uh, and now, suddenly, with the Biden administration in charge, 
we're on the cusp, potentially, of the regime of Iran getting nuclear weapons? How is this possible? Well, you know, when the leader of the free world, if, if we can still call uh, Joe Biden that, when he's projecting weakness onto the world, our adversaries, such as China, Russia, and of course, the Islamic Republic, they're going to take notice of that. They're going to take advantage of it, and then they're going to exploit that. And that's exactly what's happening right now. And you, you made a good point. You know, during President Trump's uh, tenure in the White House, the Islamic Republic was uh, really on life support in a lot of different ways. In fact, in the last couple of months of his administration, the Islamic Republic was down to, I think, either three or four billion dollars in international reserves. That's what the IMF had been reporting. Um, now, three to four billion dollars to you and me is a lot of money, uh, but three to four billion dollars to a sovereign nation like the Islamic Republic is keeping the lights on maybe for a month or two. Um, and that's, you know, President Trump's maximum pressure campaign was really working and it really isolated uh, the regime. Uh, and it really got them down to, as I mentioned, three to four billion dollars. Now, the, the unfortunate news to, to report to you and, and to your audience and to the Canadian people is that as of last year, uh, after one full year of Joe Biden in the White House, the Islamic Republic's international reserves grew from three to four billion to over 40 billion dollars. And in addition to that, uh, they're also selling around a billion dollars a month in crude oil uh, to China. Um, so, yeah, the Islamic Republic has very much benefited from a Biden administration. Um, and it looks like it's all signs pointing uh, to Biden and his team trying to do everything that they can to strike a new deal uh, with the Islamic Republic. But, but quite honestly, uh, I don't think there's going to be a deal. I think if there was going to be a deal, it would have happened already. Uh, Biden uh, and, and Robert Malley and the entire team, they've already said that they're going to lift every single economic sanction uh, that possibly is out there. So what more would the Islamic Republic of Iran want from us uh, to do a deal. And, and I think that kind of gets to the, the point that I'm making here is that I don't think they want to do a deal. I think they want to do as much as they can to buy time so they can enrich uranium, so they can build their, their, their relationships and influence with Russia and China. Uh, and then at the end of the day, they're just going to say, oh, you know what, we're not ready for a deal with you guys. And you know what, it's going to be the American people uh, that, that look like fools. But Brian, uh, please help me connect the dots here. I don't understand um, what America gets in terms of making Iran more powerful, uh, richer, um, getting nuclear weapons, etc. Why would the Biden administration, whether there is a deal or not, why would they think this is good for the domestic interests of the United States and, for that matter, the free world? It's it's one of those head scratching moments, right? It doesn't make much sense uh, to to anyone uh, like me who is in the foreign policy world every single day, and it, let alone uh, does not make any sense to the average American that maybe thinks about foreign policy once or twice a year. Um, you know, this new deal that Biden is trying to to strike uh, with. Uh, the mullahs in Tehran, uh, it's a bad deal for America. It's a bad deal for our allies in the region like Israel, like Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and other uh, Arab countries. And also, and most importantly, it's a bad deal for the Iranian people. If we unfreeze billions of dollars of economic sanctions, uh, the Islamic Republic has a track record of what they're going to do once we unfreeze those assets. They're going to push more money out the door to their terrorist proxies like Hamas, like Hezbollah, like the Houthis and the 
50 other terrorist organizations that they support all throughout the world. So um, it's pretty clear what's going to happen if they are able to get their hands on billions of dollars of uh, through you know us lifting economic sanctions. But the final point here is, yes, the American people do not stand to benefit in any fashion whatsoever from a deal with Iran, from diplomacy with Iran. We need to further isolate this terrorist regime uh, and stand with the Iranian people. It sure would be nice if, if President Joe Biden would say that once. Say the words once, I don't stand with the Islamic Republic, but I do stand with the Iranian people, and he will never say that. And that, and that really is concerning. And it's really a head-scratching moment because it doesn't make any sense to me and it doesn't make any sense to the average American in terms of why we're engaged in diplomacy with the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism. It is absolutely baffling, Brian. And please tell me if I have this right. The negotiations between Iran and the United States, they're not direct. There's an intermediary here, which is Russia? Russia is uh, is driving the negotiations. Uh, Robert Malley and the rest of the U.S. team is at the kitty table right now uh, as Russia and China uh, do everything that they can to put pressure on us to do a deal uh, with Iran. It's, it's just absolutely insanity um, that we're even having these negotiations in the first place, let alone uh, now uh, Russia is the one are the ones that are in the driver's seat here. It's it's insanity. And, and again, that adds an added level of bizarreness to this, Brian, I think, because on uh, one hand, you have uh, Biden condemning Russia for the brutal war in Ukraine, although I'd like to see him do some more tangible things like give the Ukrainians MiGs and helicopters and whatnot. For some reason, uh, that's a no-go. And then on the other hand, uh, our um, my man Russia, they're going to negotiate a great deal for the United States of America. I'm sorry, this does not compute. Again, what is the unspoken strategy going on here, Brian? There, there is no real strategy from from <laughs> our perspective when it comes to this diplomacy with with the Islamic Republic. And, and you know, it's interesting. Russia's uh, foreign minister, or maybe not their foreign minister, but their lead negotiator here. Uh, was on tape uh, a couple of weeks ago saying that, you know, the Islamic Republic got a really good deal here. Um, so that's kind of the state of affairs is that you have uh, Russia acknowledging that the United States of America has done everything that we can uh, to, to do a deal uh, with the Islamic Republic. Uh, and it still hasn't happened yet. And that's why I said earlier that I don't think the deal is going to happen. I don't think they're interested in, in engaging in any kind of real diplomacy with us. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. The first and most important reason for that is that over the summer in June or July of last year, uh, China did a deal with the Islamic Republic where they agreed to invest $400 billion over the next 25 years into the Islamic Republic. Now, the Islamic Republic hasn't even seen $10 million in outside investment over the last 10 years. And here you have China coming in with $400 billion. Uh, there have been rumors that Russia is going to do a similar deal as well. So let's be frank here, okay? If you're the uh, Iranian regime, and you're, you're weighing the scale here, right? And on one side of the scale, you have a definite deal for $400 billion with China and potentially even more with Russia. That's definite. It's happening. Nothing's going to change that. And then on the flip side, you have a temporary deal 
that would see 50 to 75 billion dollars in economic sanctions being lifted. Um, but the Iranian regime knows that any Republican uh, that comes into the White House, uh, if we're successful in winning the, the White House in 2024, is going to rip up that deal. And furthermore, they know that if and when Republicans take back the majority in the House and also hopefully the Senate, um, that that's also going to be another opposition to, to actually getting a deal done. So if you're the Iranian regime in summer, you have two you have two choices right now. You can do a temporary deal with America or you can do a rock solid deal with China and Russia. They're going to they're going to pick China and Russia every single day of the week. And it's not just because the money is there. It's because they're also very aligned. What do Russia, China and Iran, you know, have in common outside of, you know, that they all support, you know, uh, terrorist proxies. They're also, you know, leading the world in, in human rights abuse. Mm -hmm. You have the Uyghur Muslims in, in, in China that are in, you know, quote unquote, concentration camps. You have uh, Russia arresting thousands of their citizens who took to the streets to protest the war in Ukraine. And finally, you have the Iranian people who are murdered, censored, and oppressed for speaking out uh, against their regime. And even more than that, if you are gay or lesbian in the Islamic Republic, you're probably going to get pushed off of a rooftop for your sexual preference. So um, these three countries, they have a lot in common. And you know who they don't have a lot in common with? The United States of America. And that's the really, that's kind of the, the big thing that I keep trying to talk about is that the American people, yes, we don't stand to benefit in any way, shape, or form from diplomacy with, with the Islamic Republic. But more importantly, our president, who in theory, you know, is carrying out the will of the American people, you know, his constituents, we don't want diplomacy with another country that doesn't share any of our values. So um, that's why I've been very, very strong, and our organization's been very strong on calling for Joe Biden and his administration to pivot away from this appeasement strategy that he's had from day one with, with Iran uh, and back to that maximum pressure campaign, uh, it was working and it was getting really close to potentially pushing the Islamic Republic, the regime in the Islamic Republic out of power once and for all. You know, it's just incredible, Brian. I mean, you would think those who are left of center, they'd be very concerned about things like women's rights, gay rights, freedom of expression, of assembly, of the press. Um, all of these things are under attack, but apparently uh, nothing to see here. Move along, move along. But from what you said, I, I guess the really dire news is that Iran doesn't need a deal with the U.S. It can uh, go nuclear thanks to its other allies, namely Russia and China, who don't really have human rights records to brag about either. Here's a hypothetical question for you, Brian. In the years ahead, if Iran does get nuclear weapons, do you think this nation would actually use them? I 100 percent. I think, yes, of course they would use it. The, the, the Ayatollah Khomeini and his entire leadership in the IRGC has been talking for decades now about raising Taifa and raising Tel Aviv in Israel. Uh, I don't know if they're going to be able to, to, to reach American shores, but of course they're going to go after Israel. Uh, if they have uh, the combination of, uh, of enough, uh, enough uranium uh, for a nuclear warhead combined with ballistic missiles, I think 100% they're going to hit Israel. Uh, and, and I also would further add to, to all of that in, in that 
I think in a lot of ways, um, the Islamic Republic is kind of in a de facto state of war with a lot of countries throughout the world. Uh, the United States, uh, directly and indirectly, through the Americans that they have killed over the years. Uh, of course, Israel, indirectly, through all the terrorist proxies that they fund inside of Israel on an Israel's borders. And also, to, to, to take it home or make it more personal for you and for your audience, um, what about the, the hundreds of Canadians that were killed uh, recently uh, in that um, you know unexplained passenger jet uh, that was downed by the IRGC. Remember, they shot two rockets into a passenger jet yes. coming out of Ukraine because they thought it was the Americans coming in to bomb them. Uh, let, now we you know have learned, uh, unfortunately, uh, that was a passenger jet. Hundreds of people died, and I do believe that it was around maybe 80, 90, or 100 Canadians that died on that as well. So, um, yeah, the, the malign influence of the Islamic Republic kind of does doesn't see any boundaries, and and that's why you know it takes strong leadership, not just from from the leader of the free world in America, but there needs to be strong leadership from around the world. You know, the head of states of the United States, Canada, Mexico, Europe, Israel, and a lot of other countries need to come together uh, and say no to the Islamic Republic and yes to the Iranian people. That's the only way uh, you know we're going to get out of this horrible mess uh, that we're in right now. It is a mess, and it's a terrifying prospect that this country could not only acquire but even use uh, nuclear weapons. Brian, we, before we wrap, we should say that you and I were originally going to do this um, interview in person. You're down in the Freedom State of Florida. I wish I was there with you, my friend. Um, Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. But here's the thing. You were going to be in Toronto tomorrow um, at the Albany Club. There was going to be a roundtable discussion of uh, Iran and its place in the world. You were going to be the moderator. And suddenly it got canceled. What's the story there? Yeah, so I, I'm not at liberty to go into to all the details, unfortunately. But what I can what I can say is, you know, after we started to publicly promote this event on social media, um, suddenly security threats started to to arise. Um, and, you know, several of uh, the panelists uh, are actually on uh, the uh, uh, the foreign sanctions list, uh, on Iran's foreign sanctions list. So they're already kind of in the crosshairs in a lot of ways. Um, but, yeah, once we started publicly promoting the event, um, suddenly uh, security th concerns and threats started to appear or started to arise, I should say, and that's why the event was uh, ultimately canceled. Uh, now, we are going to reschedule the event and we're going to, you know, beef up security and we're going to be coming back to Toronto soon. Uh, but let me just say this much, you know, I'm, I'm sure the Islamic Republic and, and all of their operatives are, are, are watching this and, and they're, they're, they're wondering, you know, did, did it work? You know, did, did, uh, did their scare tactics scare us? They certainly did not. We're going to continue forward on our mission uh, of exploiting the Islamic Republic regime for the terrorists that they are. Uh, we're going to continue building great relationships with uh, our, our, our friends in Congress. We're going to continue lifting up the voices of, our, of Iranian Americans and also Iranian dissidents from all around the world who wish to speak out against this regime. We are not going to take our foot off of the gas pedal, and we're going to keep doing everything that we're doing. So if they think uh, that a couple security threats is going to be enough to, to push us back, they have another thing coming to them. 
Well, I really hope you do reschedule that. And the final question, especially from a Canadian perspective, Brian, um, we have a Liberal MP. His name is Majid Johari. He represents the riding of Richmond Hill. I've lived in uh, the city of Richmond Hill for almost 25 years, Brian. It has a very large um, Iranian expat popula uh, population. I would say it's almost 14%, which is pretty big. Every Iranian I've met has just been fantastic. Uh, they have been the kind of people that have fled the regime because they hate what's happening there. And yet this member of parliament, Mr. Johari, he is a friend to the regime. He supports the regime. He's had members of the Iranian parliament in Canada for meetings. How is this possible uh, that such an individual in our great dominion, in our great democracy, with that kind of track record, can get elected and re-elected, and especially running for the Liberal uh, Party. I mean, I always thought liberalism, well, at least classical liberalism, was all about freedom. Uh, not so much anymore. Your take on this individual being the representative of uh, the Richmond Hill writing. Well, I, I certainly don't think this individual is uh, really the representative of, of the Iranian-Canadian Iranian people, for sure. Uh, but certainly, it does sound like he, he, he has some influence. And what I'll also you know, tell you, while I can't you know, speak as a, a subject matter expert on Canadian politics, uh, I can tell you that you know, we have some uh, politicians here in America that quite routinely echo talking points from the Islamic Republic. Uh, quite routinely make excuses for the Islamic Republic, quite routinely will uh, target the world's only Jewish country in the world, Israel, uh, for their quote-unquote human rights abuses, but yet they are silent when it comes to China. They are silent when it comes to Iran and to a lot of other Arab countries. So uh, I'm not surprised uh, at all, uh, but uh, I don't know. Maybe uh, maybe I'm talking out of line here, but hey, this is your neighborhood. Maybe it's time for you to mount a primary challenge against that individual. What do you think? <laughs> well, I'll tell you this. Every time I try to interview him, he calls the police. I think he lives back in Tehran where there's no such thing as a free press. So, uh, But we're, we're yeah, watching maybe. him. We're watching him closely, Brian. Brian, uh, so many other subjects uh, to, to discuss regarding Iran. But this is, of course, the biggest one. I hope you reschedule that. And if and when you do get back into Toronto, I want you to come into the studio so we can have an in-person discussion. Good luck with all the great work you are doing there, my friend. No, oh, thank you so much. And I, I do look forward to seeing you in Toronto. We'll go to a, a Blue, Jay, a Blue Jays uh, game together. And, and to you as well, thank you for all the great work that you do and all the great work that Rebel does. And, and just, you know, keep... Keep moving forward, exposing the truth and talking about the truth. And truth is always going to prevail. Thank you so much, Brian. My pleasure. Thank you. Feedback on some of Ezra's most recent monologues, including that one about the RCMP having a six-figure bill for their banquets when the Freedom Convoy was in town. Canadian Breeze writes, 100000 a year and they can't buy their own lunches. The officers should be should all be publicly named. Well, 100000 a year, maybe that's the base salary. 
I can tell you they were probably making double time doing the security beat in uh, Ottawa on Parliament Hill. And yeah, I think they can buy their own ham sandwich as opposed to billing it to the beleaguered taxpayer. Raker Staker writes, if Twitter accepted and endorsed free speech, the value would explode and possibly crush Facebook. You know, I think you're right, but this proves one thing, my friend. This is not about free speech. This is not about money, rather. This is about containing free speech. Remember, the censorious thugs of Silicon Valley look upon free speech as hateful, as offensive, not something to champion. They are not about the First Amendment, quite the opposite. Go, Elon, go. BeachDeb58 writes, we need more men like Gavin in this world. Of course, that's Gavin McInnes. You know, I love Gavin. Um, he is hilarious. He is brilliant. And uh, I wish him all the best in the future. We do need people like Gavin, uh, much like my monologue, The Emperor's New Clothes. He's the little boy calling out the bullshite in the public square. Well, folks, that wraps it up for our show tonight. Ezra will be back uh, tomorrow, Tuesday. In the meantime, stay sane. Speaking of this government, have you heard of the passing of uh, Bill 100, which would essentially stomp out anyone protesting uh, any along any major infrastructure? Uh, what do you make of that legislation? Um, I think it's uh, just another scare tactic like they've been doing. They, they've been trying to do this and stop these protests for the last two years with... Uh, no avail. You know, they, ha they haven't been able to stop it. I think this bill is uh, just smoke and mirrors like everything else. And we have inalienable rights as Canadians. We, uh, we have the Bill of Rights and that's what we'll stand under no matter what. But when all of us come together and all of us unify, they can't stop us. So I think it's finding your voice, helping others raise their voice and uh, just saying no. So let's go Canada! Freedom! Mary Ugolini here with Rebel News. The wind keeps blowing over my tripod. So, uh, well, today is Good Friday. Technically, I'm supposed to be taking the day off. This doesn't stop freedom-loving Ontarians from exercising their civil liberties, and I'm here to cover it. In the background, there is a freedom train. They're heading to Niagara Falls from Ottawa. They left early this morning and have a few pit stops to make along the way. The second of those pit stops, the scheduled stop, is here in Oshawa, Ontario. And while we've seen the continuation of Orwellian-worded legislation continue in Ontario under the supposed Progressive Conservative Party led by Premier Doug Ford, and while other legislation such as the Reopening Ontario Act remains in place with the ability for the government to reimpose all COVID restrictions on the snap of a finger, in a sneaky late-night voice vote and without informing all MPPs, the Ontario government's Bill 100, Keeping Ontario Open for Business Act, passed its third reading. It, tames, it takes aim at any protest that could be seen as impeding necessary transportation infrastructure. If we recap some of the major truck protests that rippled across Canada late January to mid-February of this year, where truckers protested federal vaccine mandates and COVID-related restrictions, the most potentially disruptive of which was the Ambassador Bridge protest. 
yet it was swiftly dealt with by the Ford government using existing legal tools weeks before the federal government enacted the Emergency Measures Act under highly controversial circumstances. Fast track to today and Bill 100, which had its first reading on March 21st, is being stamped through the legislature in a sneaky overnight vote that happened sometime between April 13th and 14th. But the protesters aren't finished and the Canadian government still refuses to end all COVID-related mandates. The hypocrisy couldn't be more evident as unvaccinated refugees are welcomed into Canada with open arms, while everyday unvaccinated Canadians are still banned from boarding a plane, train or bus. So I'm going to head on into the crowd back there and see what the people have to say about the current state of affairs in Ontario and what brings them out to the Freedom Train today. Let's check it out. Okay, so what brought you out to support the Freedom Train today? Well, I was uh, one of the organizers for East Toronto for the Ottawa Freedom Convoy. And uh, being a part of Durham Region, I found out that the train from Ottawa to Niagara was stopping here. I decided to come out and show support just because, uh, you know, at Rise Up Durham, we've been doing it for the last two years. So it's good to see a lot of people coming out and finally uh, speaking their mind and, and letting this government know how they feel about it. So anytime I see something like this, I'll put my full support involved, no matter what. Absolutely. So standing for freedom, um, the way the government has been taking away our rights, passing bills through government that we disagree with. Um, we just want to show people that we are not a fringe minority. We are out here. Um, and anybody who wants to join, you know, we are true Canadian patriots. We just want the freedom to choose what goes in our body um, and not be told what goes in and out of our body. Um, do we draw the line with vaccines or where's the government going to draw the line with that? So it's really important to me about what goes in my body. Apparently this is for the freedom. So I, I came from a communist country. As you well know, yeah, the China communist the country China. So what brought you out to the freedom train today? Uh, for freedom of choice and for my kids that they have a choice further down the road or when they grow up that they can make their own choices and whatnot. Well, we're fighting for our freedom here in Canada against the WEF about the digital ID, vaccine mandates, all of it, all of it. I'm in this freedom van, freedom loving van. What brings you uh, to be part of the freedom train today? Yeah, well, I live uh, live out in Whitby, so I just came out to hop on in Oshawa to go down to Niagara and keep fighting for freedom. I was out there since the first day in Ottawa and, you know, haven't really stopped since. Came back last week pretty much for the first time and now I'm uh, back fighting for freedom out this way. Speaking of this government, have you heard of the passing of uh, Bill 100, which would essentially stomp out anyone protesting uh, any along any major infrastructure? Uh, what do you make of that legislation? Um, I think it's uh, just another scare tactic like they've been doing. They, they've been trying to do this and stop these protests for the last two years with uh, no avail. You know, they, ha they haven't been able to stop it. I think this bill is... Uh, just smoke and mirrors like everything else. And we have inalienable rights as Canadians. We uh, we have the Bill of Rights and that's what we'll stand under no matter what. Again, they're taking away our freedoms. Um, we should have the right to protest when somebody disagrees with the government in a peaceful way. Um, we're all very peaceful here. So I think we're just trying to show the love, unity and support that we disagree currently with our rights and freedoms being taken away. The veterans have fought and died, excuse me, for our rights and freedoms. 
And that's what we're here to do is to stand up for that and stand in line with them and take our freedoms back because we're not backing down from this. I mean, they'll always try, but just matter of charter challenges when the time comes and, you know, we'll see how it goes from there. As far as I've heard, it's already passed and I think it's an illegal bill and it's against the Charter of Rights for Canadians. How do you think we get through this with the with the government, you know, continuing the power grabs and the easing, but simultaneous you know, ability to impose the restrictions uh, at the snap of a fingers? How, how do we move forward as Canadians to get out of this emergency once and for all? Non-compliance. That's pretty much all I got to say. Get out with your with your peers, speak with your family members, let them know what's going on. A lot of people are uh, ignorant, and I don't mean that as in stupid, I just mean uneducated. Uh, the, the ignorance is bliss, like it always has been, and stop watching your TV. Yeah, just stop complying. Don't listen to what they tell you. You know, reach out to people like us at Rise Up Durham and, and all the other groups around, and we'll get you uh, up to date with with what's really going on and the news that you guys really need to see, just like you guys are rebel. Find the people who are gonna stand up with you. When one person stands up, it's hard for them to stand up alone, but when all of us come together and all of us unify, they can't stop us. So I think it's finding your voice, helping others raise their voice and uh, just saying no. So let's go Canada! Freedom! Freedom! All right, we just gotta just gotta keep up the noise that you know we're not we're not gonna deal with it anymore. It's not uh, it's not that big of a deal. We need to get back to living our lives. And... Um, I don't know. It's stand up and fight the government. Stand up against them and fight for what you believe in. That's what I'm trying to find out. I would love to know the answer to that question. Vote, vote, vote. Do your research and vote correctly and hopefully we can stop it vaccine passports were unscientific and unethical and we called it from the beginning it's why we have set up a special page to crowdfund litigation for plaintiffs in the unfortunate receiving end who have been on the unfortunate receiving end of such heavy-handed policies you can stay up to date with active litigation that wouldn't be possible without the generosity of our donors at fightvaccinepassports.com. At that website, you can donate, if you're able to, and sign our petition to end vaccine passports and mandates once and for all. That website again is fightvaccinepassports.com.